Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation, and I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that day. As God said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with the money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me as we come before God in his word this morning. 
God, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that it's in your word that you remind us of your deep love, your devotion to your people, that you would speak to us. We pray that you would speak to us by your word in your spirit this morning, that our hearts would be encouraged and strengthened to ever walk with you all our days. In Christ's glorious name we pray, amen. You know, uh, something, something happens to you uh, when you get married. Uh, and one of the, the chief things that happens to you when you enter into marriage is uh, you lose uh, your freedom. You give up your, your freedom and your autonomy to do whatever you want on your own to be bound to another person. The, the Bible calls this, you know, you become one flesh. Uh, where you become one with somebody else, you're no longer an individual anymore. And, um, and this happens as soon as you make those vows and you seal it with a kiss in front of a bunch of people, um, you now become one. Um, and believe it or not, this is actually one of the harder things to learn uh, to actually live out when you get married. Now, I'm not speaking from personal experience here at all. But, uh, but often what can happen, and especially in those first years, is you forget that, hey, I'm actually bound to somebody else. I can't just go out with my friends whenever I want. I got to check in. I got to talk and plan. Again, not talking from experience. I would have never uh, do that uh, to my wife. Uh, but it, it takes some time. It takes some adjusting because all you know up until that point is to be your own person, to do whatever you want, whenever you want. And now all of a sudden that time, um, you're, you're actually bound. You, you give up your freedom to be bound to another person. And I think, you know, most struggles in marriage, um, again, not talking from personal experience, uh, uh, most struggles in marriage actually, I think, revolve around this idea of it's, it's hard to give up yourself for the sake of somebody else. It's hard to, for two fleshes to become one flesh. And therein lies, I think, the heart of many of the challenges of marriage. Uh, because we like doing whatever we want, uh, whenever we want, and we like to be autonomous people. So maybe the question is, why would we ever give up our autonomy, our freedom, to become bound to another person in the first place? Why would we ever think to do that when it's so challenging and so hard and the source of so much conflict? Well, it's, be it's because of love, right? Love is the thing that says, I will give up my freedom to be bound to you. Love is the thing that says, no, you first. I'm gonna, I'll give up my life gladly for you because... I love you. This is what love does. Love is binding yourself to somebody else, giving up your life for somebody else. In fact, you, you can't have love without giving up your autonomy. And it's one thing, I think we, we know this is true, even though we struggle with it. We know this is true in our human relationships. We feel it. But you know what, what's also true is this is actually true for how God views his people as well. Um, you know, because one of the things Genesis 17 is actually teaching us uh, is that this is, what God does for us. In, in, in him choosing his people, he binds himself to us. God himself gives up his own freedoms to be bound to you. It's a wild thing, isn't it? Why would God do that? Why would God give up his, his freedom to be bound to us? It's the same reason why we give up our freedom to be bound to each other. It's because of love. In fact, the, the, the human version of love that we feel each other is just a pale reflection, a glimpse of how God views his people and how God actually exists in himself and this trinity, um, loving himself. Uh, this, is, this is how God views us, uh, the way a husband views his bride. This is what his covenants are. 
His covenants ultimately are God binding himself to his people. And in his covenants with man, God says, I will lose my freedom because I want you. And if, if I don't do this, there's actually no hope for humanity. And if you've ever wondered why God doesn't just like start over again and again and again, like with Abraham when he does all the dumb things that he does. If you were here last week, Genesis 16 is a rough chapter. If you ever wonder why doesn't God just like, you know, maybe pick someone new? Um, if you've ever wondered how you can be confident even in your own life that God still pursues you, even though you probably do some dumb things sometimes, um, this is why. It's because of his covenant. Uh, he is bound to us, to rescue us. He is bound to help us advance his purposes in this world. His covenant binds, us, binds him to this truth. Um, he, he has to do this because he said he would. God binds himself to his covenant promises to his people. And here in Genesis 17, we kind of get the final piece of, the, of this you know, covenant blessing that's kind of started in Genesis 12 when, when God first called Abraham to Genesis 15 when we kind of get the covenant kind of happening, ratified. And then in here, in this final um, in this chapter with, with God and Abraham in the, in the God giving the covenant to Abraham, we see uh, this sign happen where he marks his people. And so as we... As we kind of look at these final pieces of the, the covenant that God makes with Abraham here. We're going to divide this up into, into three parts, and we're going, to, we're going to learn three things about this, these covenants. The first is we're going to see God reaffirming his covenant uh, with promises. He's, he begins by reaffirming some things that he's already said in the past. Secondly, we see God sealing the covenant promises with a sign. And then finally, we, we're going to see God fulfilling his covenant promises with a son. So first, God reaffirms his covenant with promises. You see this kind of begin here in, in verse one. It says, when Abraham was, Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. You know, one of the, one of the first things to note here is that 13 years have passed uh, since Genesis 16 and the events of Genesis 16. When we last saw Abraham, he was uh, 86 years old. Now he's 99 years old. Math, numbers, it's 13. That's the number. It's been 13 years uh, since uh, the events of of Genesis 16. You know, sometimes when you read the Bible, uh, it's hard to read time lapses into it because we're just reading this chapter, then this happened, then this happened. 13 years is a long time. Uh, 13 years is probably longer than most people in this room have been alive. Um, And uh, so a lot of time has, has, has... has passed, uh, and in that I think it's important because it seems that you know things with Hagar and Ishmael have kind of you know settled. It seems like they've been integrated nicely into the family. You know so much so that it seems like Abraham's like, no, I think Ishmael is going to be the child of promise. He's clearly going to be the the thing that God's been talking to me about. Um, so things seem to be going well there. Um, so long time has passed since since chapter sixteen. But further, since Genesis twelve, and God first has called and made all these promises uh, to Abraham. It's been 24 years. 24 years, again, it's not a short amount of time since, God has, since Abraham had started following God and heard these promises. A long time has passed. It's been a while. And so the first thing that God does when he comes to him here after all this time is he reaffirms some of the things that he's already said to him. Uh, some of these covenant promises. And it's, it's such a kindness from the Lord that he does this. It's like, it's like if I said, hey, you know, when I die, you can have my truck. But I never mention it again. 
you might wonder, is he actually serious? Am I actually going to get the truck when he dies, or what's going to happen there? And, uh, and so it's a kindness from the Lord to remind us that, no, I've covenanted with you. I have not forgotten this promise. I am going to give you these things. This is why the first thing God says to him, listen, I am the Almighty, which that's the Hebrew for El Shaddai, which is one of the many different names that we have for God. And El Shaddai is like, I'm the rock. I'm the, I am the, the one that always is. You're a frail, Abraham. You, you've, you ebb and flow like the sea, but I am sure. Uh, and so God begins by reminding him, I am El Shaddai. I am almighty. I don't forget my promises to my people. I am the one who keeps my covenant promises. And barring from many others who talk a lot about the covenants, we're going to find there's, there's three things that he has promised before that he reaffirms, and he kind of gives us a little bit more insight into these three things that he's promised to do for Abraham. The first is, um, is that he's, he's promised to give him a, a people, a land, and a blessing. So first, he reaffirms the, the people here in verse 4 to 5. He says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations, no longer Shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So God is saying to Abram, listen, one person is not enough for me to make this promise to, to expand this kingdom. Um, God has global aspirations. He plans to make his kingdom reign um, in all creation. And in order to do it, he's going to make, turn Abram, this one family, into nations. Kings are going to come from him. His lineage will, remember, outnumber the stars. And to prove this, to show this, he changed his name, which is I'm thankful for because I keep on calling him Abraham anyways because um, it's hard, you know? We know him as Abraham. Uh, and so he changes his name to Abraham, and Abraham is this name, um, and, it, and it means father of nations. And so his name, it's in his name that this is, this is who you are. And, uh, and then it gives us some insight into three different kinds of people um, that are going to be coming from, from Abraham or that are going to be included in this, in this group. And the first group we find that's included is, is children. Um, it's the first group of people he, he thinks of. In verse 7, he says, And I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring and throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be between you and your offspring after you. Now, the covenant is with Abraham and his children. The offspring that have not even yet been born forever, for all eternity, he's going to promise to this people. And the, the sign of the, the covenant that they end up getting is for all the adults in the household, but it's also for those who are infants, eight days old. Um, right Before they can have a faith that's their own, before they can do anything but babble, uh, they are included as a part of this covenant family. They're marked by the covenant, they, they, get, they get numbered among the people of God from birth. So one of, the, one of the truths you find in scripture is that all the covenants in scripture actually include our children. They have our children in view. Those that are not yet born are always in view of these covenants. And one of the beautiful truths about this is God regards all the children of those that follow him as part of his family. And this includes even our church. All our children are part of this family, are part of the people of God, you know, which is one reason we love having children be a part of our services. Is it hard sometimes? Yeah. Is it noisy sometimes? Yeah. Is it distracting for me sometimes? Absolutely. But we love it. Why? Because they're not second-class citizens to us. We don't, we don't put them out as if they're, they're separate. They're not, they're not all the way part of this people. No, they are part of God's people. Jesus says, let the children come to him. And so we take him at his word and all the little challenges and noises that they bring with them 
and uh, we include them. Because God has always included children, we include children. Even our children who don't yet know left from right. Um, so the first group of people that we get see included in this people that this covenant is for is children. This, the second is foreigners. Foreigners are included. You look, see this in, in verse 12. At the end of verse 12, it says, Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. So foreigners are included. It's not just people that are from Abraham's offspring, but those from the outside that are part of this house. Um, it's not just ethnic Abraham, but those who are brought into this community from the outside. Uh, and then the New Testament, we learn a, a little bit about this um, because it's not um, our, our bloodline that, that unites us to the faith of Abraham, but it's actually our faith that unites us and makes us children of Abraham. The heritage is, is, a, is a faith heritage, which is why we are in, considered part of this lineage. We are part of the, 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 the number that outnumbers the stars. That includes everyone in this room. That is us. We are the children of Abraham. We are part of this promise. We're living it out. Uh, it's not about blood heritage. It's, it's about the faith heritage. And then, you know, and sometimes it's easy to think that that's just a New Testament idea. But here we see that, no, this was always the idea for God and his people. It was always to bring the foreigner, the outsider in, welcome them into the community of God. God's community is always meant to be growing and expanding wherever she finds herself. And globally, this is just what's happened. It globally expands and grows. This is what God's kingdom and what God's people do. Always inviting the outsider in. You know, and this is something that can actually be really hard for churches, especially churches like ours that are a little bit new. We're on the smaller side, but we're also growing. And, uh, and it can be easy to think, man, I just remember the, miss those good old days when we met in Pastor Craig's backyard and, uh, and cats drank out of the communion bowl. And there's just a few of us. We all had lunch after. Oh, man, I wish I just knew everybody again. And, and I, one of my favorite things actually about our first service is the next day, everyone had a sunburn on just half of their face. Um, it looked awesome. Except for me, I was in shade, so that was nice for me. Um, but but we can, we can kind of lament actually growing. But friends, this is what God's people do. We grow. We, we always invite the outsider in. Uh, and it's not just about feeling like a family, but it's actually being the family that God's called us to do, which is always welcoming the foreigner, the outsider, into this community. And it's good for us to remember. The third... Uh, group that's a part of this people that he names, which is interesting, is um, slaves. He talks about um, the, the slave that's being brought into the community. And I'm not going to get too deep into this topic. It's a fairly deep topic to get into. But uh, just a, a couple of things I, I want to point out is that slavery, when it's talked about in the Bible, is very different than probably the slavery we think of. When we think of slavery, we think uh, the slave trade to America and Europe, the chattel slavery, and the evil in, uh, in that system. Um, slaves were still kind of a different class of people, but slavery in scripture was, was actually more like an employer-employee relationship than a I own you as a person relationship. There were still elements of that, but it's not quite the same. So just something to, to keep in mind, but it's still kind of a, a different class of, of people. Uh, and even, even those people though, even the people that are lower class citizens, they get the mark of the covenant that says, you're my people. Even those people, God marks and says, I'm going to bind myself to you, which makes the, it's not just slave and master, but brother, family. This is, this is actually something you see play out in the, the New Testament 
church too. I don't know if you remember any of these stories, but where you know a, a master and a slave would be part of the same church and they would go together and they'd be baptized and it actually changed their relationship. It's a brother. It actually caused some issues in the, in the early church. Well, what do we do with this relationship? And actually, it is this seed of elevating the slave to the brother that helped end slavery in the West. It, it, in God's covenant community, there is no class distinction. He binds himself to our children, to the, to the foreigner, to the slave. God's covenant promises includes, includes a people that is, includes all different kinds of image bearers. Like there's no second and third class citizens. It includes those who don't yet have a voice in our, in our children who are dependent on us for everything. It includes those on the outside and the foreigners, even those who in our society don't have any kind of social status, the slave. All the things that divide us in our ethnic and social walls are get torn down in God's community, what he's building through Abraham. He binds himself to this people. And what are they being brought into? Where is he bringing this people? Well, he's bringing this people into a land. This is the second thing we see him reaffirming is God reaffirms this promise of a land for this newly formed people to live in forever. You know, eternity is not us living in the clouds, uh, floating around with harps as, as tantalizing as that image is for us to maybe desire. I hope not. It doesn't sound fun at all. It wouldn't be. But our eternity is living in a physical land. It's living on, on earth. Actually, this earth. That's the future. Which, you know, even the word human comes from the word humus, which is the stuff that dirt is made out of from dust. This is our home. And here we see God's covenant promise includes an eternal home, and it is here on this earth made new forever and ever. This is where he says, I will establish my covenant with you, in verse 7, for an everlasting covenant to be, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession I will be their God. This is an everlasting and eternal home that he is promising his people. It's not floating in space. It is here forever. Heaven on earth means God will be with us here forever. The salvation that God promised us, us in this covenant is him restoring the earth and living with us here with his people all our days. So God, in his covenant, promises with his people. He's reaffirming this. I'm going to give you a people. And as a people, people need land. I'm going to give you land here on this earth to live in, to dwell in, to farm, to enjoy your family. But what makes these things so amazing is this final piece of the promise. And it's this blessing. And we see this in verse 8. He says, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. Listen to this. And he says, and I will be their God. It's the final place. The blessing that he promises us is he himself. That he will be with us. That he will be our king governing us. He will be there. You know, commentators point out that this language that he's, God is using here is, is like a marriage vow for us. He said, I will be yours. You will be mine. I am binding myself to you and these promises. That I will be your king. You will be my people. We will live forever in a land made new. I'm inviting you into my kingdom. Which is something we desperately need because, you know, how do you know that you're a Christian? Is it that you live perfectly? Is it that you, you sin no more? Of course not. Uh, that's not what makes us Christians. Uh, it's, it's not that we never struggle with our faith even. 
It isn't ultimately because of our promises and the vows that we make to God, but it's, it's about the, the, the vows and promises that God makes to us, his people. That he will never leave you nor forsake you. And so God comes to Abraham, and the first thing he does is he reaffirms these deep promises. I have not forgotten these things. I will do these things as wild as they seem. Um, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to make a giant family. I'm going to make a renewed earth, and I'm going to give myself to this promise. I'm going to bind myself to you. We will live forever. This is a massive promise. And here again, he doesn't just use words, but much like in a, in a wedding, you, you give a ring as a sign of this covenant that these vows actually were said. He gives us a sign of this promise, a physical sign that we can know that he's serious. This is the second thing we see here is that God seals the covenant promises with a sign. God seals the covenant promises with a sign. We see this here in verse 11. He says this, And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So he gives them a sign that I will fulfill these promises you need to mark yourself of this truth and I will fulfill these promises that all the men and the children and infants eight days and older need to be marked. This is how you're going to know that this promise is for you. And all those uh, who were marked in this way were, were considered to be part of this covenant promise that this, this is for you. They are the people that get the land and God himself as a husband. And then what did the men and children do? Well, at the end of this, we find that they actually listen that they all go and they get circumcised. This is where they had to put some skin in the game, so to speak. Sorry, that was, that was lowbrow humor. Um, but it, it had to cost them. Um, you know, one friend once joked that if Abraham hasn't won you over yet because of some of his foolish behavior, then let verse 24 be an example for you of, how, um, of, of the faith of Abraham. It says this, verse 24, it says, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. At 99 years old, Abraham did not hesitate to have himself cut in the most intimate of places. This is actually not a, I mean, it's kind of funny, but it's also not a small thing. Um, I don't know if I would do that. Um, but it makes you wonder, like, why this sign? Of all the things you could do, God, why this? It's a little gross. Um, why this sign? Why the mark here? I think, at least in part, in almost every culture in history, the, the male parts are symbols of domination and strength and fertility. Um, and what are the things that God has actually promised to Abraham and his descendants? Like domination, right? Like worldwide kingdom, strength, fertility that they can't only imagine. Um, it's from this place that his future son is promised to be born. And it is at this place of his perceived strength and the place of his future heir, that he and all the other males are cut. So in the very places that he would be tempted to place his hope in, those are the places that are cut. As if to say, listen, to enter this covenant, you need to mark your flesh in the place of strength to show and prove that you trust God to be your strength. That you trust God to be your El Shaddai, your Almighty. This is not on you and, and your ability. Don't lean on your own strength, on your natural strengths. But lean on God. He's the one that can grant you children by his might, not your own. He said, I'm going to cut you in the most sensitive place, in the place of your pride, so that you learn to trust that that is not the source of your strength or your power. 
And now every time you look on those supposed places of strength, you remember this covenant and you remember where true strength lies. It's a powerful image. Now some of you may be wondering, listen, if circumcision marks you as being bound to God, as being part of God's married people, does that mean the outward sign is all you need to be part of that community? Just, just mark them and then we're saved. Just that outward sign is all we need. This is where I'd say, just like a, a ring alone isn't enough to stay married or to even show that you're married, neither is an outward sign on its own enough to, to stay bound to God. You know, in Deuteronomy, we, we find a little bit more information about this, that it's not enough just to be circumcised in the flesh, but God ultimately wants the hearts to get circumcised. Not with a knife, but with faith. Ultimately, this is what was supposed to happen. The natural outward sign was meant to point to God's amazing work so that you did put your faith in him. It was never meant to be you, you get this sign and then you go off and you do whatever you want. Um, but we, as a people, um, we need signs. This is, you might wonder, well, why even bother with outward signs at all then if that's not what it's about? Because we need them. We need signs that we can touch, taste, and feel. We are physical beings. We need signs that remind us of God's work on our behalf. Signs that remind us to continue to walk in faith. And you know, God's people have always needed physical reminders of inward realities. I mean, throughout all of scripture, whenever God appears, he shows up, what do they do? They build things to remind them of what God has done. This is what God's people always have done. And so here, God says, no, you're gonna be marked in the flesh. Why? To remember God's promises to you. And then as you remember God's amazing promises, what's that supposed to do? It's supposed to transform us so that we, we live a life that's transformed to, to look like God wants us to look, to obey his laws and his rules. This is meant to cause their hearts to want to follow God no matter what because of how much he's willing to give to them. Now every day they have this bodily reminder, these children, these foreigners, these outsiders, and they all have this reminder marked on them. They have a new heritage that he is the one who's gonna bring these promises to bear on the children who have been marked by circumcision. It's a tangible sign of these promises. And then the, then the last thing we see here is that, is that this promised heritage uh, won't come from Ishmael, but from a son that is not yet born. And this is the final piece that we see here is that God fulfills his covenant promises with a son. That God fulfills his covenant promises with a son. We see this Picking up in verse 15, it says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed uh, and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? Um, so this whole scene is set up by another name change. All right, Sarah, having her name changed. Uh, Sarai, sorry, having her name changed to Sarah. And Sarah's, the name, it means princess. Which, you know, don't think a Disney princess singing songs, you know, mermaids and all that stuff. Don't think that. Think royalty. Think status. Think the symbol, princess. She herself is now blessed by God to have a womb that is open to bring about these promises. So God is, is gonna transform Sarah's places of shame, her, her places of weakness. 
what is he going to do with them? He's going he's to make those places places of glory and fruitfulness. God is going to use her to bring about the fulfillment of these promises. And he's given her this new status, this new place. How does Abraham respond to this? Like any good husband, he laughs at God. That's not true. That's not what good husbands do. But he laughs at God. He laughs. He's like, he says, this is pretty insane. 100-year-old men don't really have babies. 90-year-old women don't have babies. I, he's pretty sure Ishmael is going to be the, the promised heir because of how old he is. And he's about to go into the knife. And who knows, you know, has that person done this before? What if he makes a mistake? His wife is old. Old women don't just have babies, right? Especially when they've been barren their entire lives. This just does not happen. We know this. And God's like, yes, but I am the Almighty. I'm the God who births nations from 100-year-old men and 90-year-old barren wives. Again, showcasing his strength and his might, which is what God does in our own lives. It's in our places of weakness and shame. Those are the places that God can actually come and work. Because it's only there that we can know that it was God who did his mighty work and not our own strength and ability. God says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it there. Sarah will be the one who bears the child of promise. Which, imagine Sarah for a second. She must have been greatly encouraged. Like, the Lord has heard me. Uh, he knows my plight and he has not given up on me despite my mistakes in life. He's going to make my womb fruitful. It says her child's name will be called Isaac. And Isaac... Another name that means one who laughs, which I don't know if you remember Ishmael, his, his name meant, you know, the God who listens, right? Because God listened to Hagar. And now you get the, the, the scene of the laughing father and Isaac's name means the one who laughs, reminding them uh, every moment that they call on their son, they remember the mighty works of God. That God brings children from wrinkly old people who shouldn't be bearing children. That's the kind of God that we have. He takes our places of weakness and he says, no, I'm going to work there and I'm going to make that the place of strength. And in due time, we find that Isaac indeed is born and he lives and he's one of the, one of the great patriarchs of our faith. Only in his life, you, you, you recognize that he himself actually falls short of these promises. He actually can't fulfill these promises. Um, he may be able to enter the promised land for a little bit, but he can't. He can't keep it forever. And even, you know, throughout the Old Testament, what do you, where do you see God's people? They're in and out of this promised land. They, they actually can't hold on to it. You know, the, the lines of kings come and go. They can't hold on to these things in themselves. What you find is they actually need another son. They need someone stronger to come and fulfill these promises. And all this, for us, ends up pointing to someone who's greater, another son. Someone else who had a miraculous birth but someone who wasn't born to a 90-year-old woman, but to a young virgin named Mary. All this is pointing us to Christ, the Son of God, the greater Isaac, Jesus, the long-promised Son to come through the line of Eve to reclaim the land that was taken captive in the wilderness. And as Jesus reclaims the land, what does he do? But he welcomes a people, all those on the outside to this wedding feast, foreigners he dignifies, women around him he elevates, the children, what does he say? Come to me. Jesus is the one who sets the captive free. He is building a people that defies social barriers. Even in the church, where else can you have millionaires and homeless people sharing a table? There's, there is no other place in the world but the church that this happens. Then Jesus, what does he do? He begins to prepare a land that is made new for them. 
And he is renewing all creation and he gives us himself. He himself is our bride. And when we gather around his table, he feeds us of himself. And he can feed us of himself because he himself went under a knife. He had his blood shed. Only his blood is so strong, so effective that no one else needed to go under the knife ever again. This is the great work of his blood. His blood brings about the redemption of all humanity. His blood begins the fulfillment of all these covenant promises. His blood shows and proves that he is bound to us. He will do whatever it takes, even his own death. Now, our circumcision, like our mark, is is not being cut in flesh anymore. We don't need to be cut in flesh, but our circumcision is our baptism. Now it's in our baptism we are united to the circumcision of Christ. And our baptism now is what marks us as being part of God's people. And just like in the old covenant, the new covenant with Jesus includes the same kinds of people. It includes our children, those who are far off. And now even all the women in God's people get to be marked, right? In the old covenant, women were not marked as God's people. But in the new covenant, it is fuller. It is more complete. And all his people get to be marked. There's no second class citizens. God is saying, listen, I'm bound to all of you. And, and, and just like in the, in the old, we, we need more than an outward sign. Right? We have to be baptized in our, in our hearts. We need to have a, a faith that matches our baptism. But baptism reminds us of the Almighty One who has saved us, that we are not our own, that it is God who saves us. And as we remember, as we walk in faith in our hearts, uh, we learn to prove our baptism to be true. And not only is God bound to me, but I in turn am binding myself to him. That I have a faith in him. So what, is that, what does this all mean for us now? Well, I think it means that we can, we can trust that God actually is fulfilling these covenant promises that he made to Abraham through Christ now in his church. That Jesus is bound to us as his people. He will not leave or forsake this project. This is why the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Because Jesus is bound to make this happen. This project will not fail. So Jesus is bound to his people and in his church, and he helps it to expand and grow until it covers the earth. And how do we know that we're a part of this people that God has bound himself, to? How, bound himself to? How do we know that we're a part of this group? Well, it's through our baptism and participation in the Lord's Supper. Listen, and if you are here and you haven't been baptized, and if you haven't been marked as one of God's people, this is an encouragement to remedy that, to mark yourself. To, to let yourself be marked by God that says, I am, I am yours. And if you're a parent with young children or if you're older children, talk to your parents, talk to me. Um, there's no reason to delay this. But be marked. So you can know that Jesus has bound himself and he has bound his promises to me. And we can claim those promises for ourselves. And listen, if you want your children to know who you are, baptism is the thing that says, this is who you are. This is your family. Just like your, your last name says who you are. Uh, you know, you're an, you're an Anderson. That's going to mean something. You're a Harris, and I just forgot everyone else's last names in the room. Whatever your last name is, you know, that, that's the thing that says this is who you are. Like, oh, you're one of them. Okay. You know, but that's the thing that says you are. But in baptism, it's like getting a new last name. This is, this is, this is who you are. Beloved of the Lord. Come under the waters of baptism. Get a better name. Second, I would say that, that after you're marked by God, don't 
hesitate to be part of the people of God. Make this community a priority in your life to give yourself to this people. Listen, every other community that you're involved with in the world will pass away. From sports communities to outdoor communities to hobbies to schools, etc., all the things, uh, they all will one day cease to exist. Uh, this community is part of the covenant promises of God that is eternal. It is everlasting, from everlasting, to your children, your children's children, and so on for all eternity. This institution will not fade away. Give yourself to the things that are lasting, to the things that are eternal. Yes, she is extremely messy. Yes, she is imperfect. Yes, she will sometimes give you nightmares, but it is actually in your participation with her that you can know that you are saved, that you are part of this people, that you are part of the bride of Christ. It is here that you can know that you are bound to the almighty God who has come and who will come again. And we be a people who embrace these promises and respond with deep heartfelt faith and devotion to our almighty God who has bound himself to us. Pray with me. God, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that we would be a people of the word who listen to you, who follow you, who don't just take these outward signs, but we mean them in our hearts. Give us a great devotion and love for you and the things that you love, which is your people. Bind us together as you have bound yourself to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.